Welcome to Kashrus on the Air, your weekly radio show dealing with kosher issues for the kosher consumer. And I'm your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashrus Magazine. And tonight's show, I can guarantee you, is going to be something that you're not going to forget so easily. They're very interesting topics, uh, hot off the press, as we say. And uh, we're going to be in just one minute. I want to give out our number here. If anybody would like to call during the show, we're not going to uh, stop you. If you call, we'll try to get right, put you right on. 718-683-5858. Any time during the show. Now, some of the topics that we're going to be taking on, uh, the Shabbos issue that just came up, Mr. Hashem will do with the Kurig. Uh, coffee makers, and I have a very special, although this one also is important, Mount Sinai, uh, Beth Israel, very important uh, announcement there, and then uh, we hope to take up a, uh, well, I, I almost hate to say it, because if we don't do it, then we, <laughs> you'll feel bad, but it, it will have to be done in the future, if not now, um, Rabbi Forst, I have a, a important information that I'm going to share with you, that the likes of which, you, if you haven't ever seen this, if you had never heard about it, you will definitely remember tonight's show. So without further ado, I'm going to begin uh, by discussing what just came a few minutes ago. I had got an email from the Cuff K, as a matter of fact, with a letter that many of you may have seen already that was signed by four of the the four Poiskim in Lakewood. Uh, they they are Rabbi Shmuel Felder, Rabbi Yaakov Forsheimer, uh, Rabbi Usher Chaim Lieberman, and Rabbi Shmuel Mayer Katz. These are the four Poiskim in BMG and Base Masters Gavoya in Lakewood, New Jersey. It seems that there's a new Shabbos problem. The new Shabbos problem is old. But new means that everyone's finding out about it now. <laughs> That's what makes it new. Um, and it didn't change the halacha in all the thousands of years. And, but it's extremely important to pay attention to this little thing that I'm going to discuss. It seems that many people... Now, this is not usually happening to food that you yourself work with, but it could happen in your house as well. The halacha is that all of those heterim which we have to put food on... On sh- back on the fo- uh, on a warm spot on Shabbos, or to take something off and put it back, or to leave it on before Shabbos, assuming that it was all cooked, putting it on a blech. Uh, all of this presupposes that the food is cooked. In other words, forget about trying to be a lamdan. The practical halacha is that you don't put anything up erev Shabbos on the blech, or on the hot pot, or whatever, a hot plate, whatever you're using to keep food warm in Shabbos, you don't put anything up until it has been completely cooked. That's the way to work. Are there heterim? Yeah, but you've got to be a lamdin. And, and, and when you deal with being a lamdin, it's, it's very, very tricky. I taught these halachas last year, or this year, actually last year, and um, it's, it's a very... Uh, very challenging situation to figure out exactly what is included and what's not included. And I can tell you, this separates a lot of different people. Many people just do what they think they're supposed to do and, 
and they, they understand a certain way, but they're not dealing with purely halacha. And the Svarim bring down the best Eitzah, and the best w- way for us to consult, uh, con- to conduct ourselves, is that nothing goes on the blech, even the blech, unless it has been completely cooked before shops. You can always discuss with Rabbanim exceptions to this rule, but there's not as many as you think. Now, what's the problem, the new problem? When you go to a takeout food store, the old days you saw a cholent, a cholent was cooked. Fine, a cooked cholent. It's all done, no question. So now the question, putting up before Shabbos, we just said if it's completely cooked before Shabbos, there's no problem. Or else, if you put if you it was you know it was on and, and putting it back, no problem. On certain cases uh, where we have a blech and you have five conditions, it's in your hand. You had in mind to put it back, you didn't put it down. You know it, it was completely cooked. Did you have a blech? All five conditions are present. You can put it back. Bowl of soup, a challenge, etc. The new problem is that the takeout stores are getting more sophisticated, and they figured out that food tastes better when some of the parts of it are still fresh. And it gives more of a zip when things are still fresh. So what are they doing? They're eating on a whole bunch of things to the food after it's cooked. After it's completely cooked, they're eating on condiments. They're putting on the... Well, we're going to see exactly what they, are, what they include over here. Uh, I'll give you an idea. Sesame seeds, black pepper, pesto, parsley flakes. There's a whole slew of spices and vegetables that they might add on, and they put it on everything. I have a picture here. This picture shows me that the clear, you see raw sesame seeds I've added to chicken after it's cooked. Ah, tastes much better. And just to warm it a little while on the stove, this otherwise you're going to, other thing is gooey and this, a fresh, the fresh sesame seeds are going to taste more geschmack, but they haven't been cooked yet. They're real fresh, 100% fresh, never been cooked. They're added on after the cooking. Another one over here, I see the, the parsley flakes were added on after the dish was cooked. So now you want those parsley flakes to be, you know, also to be whole and, 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 and geschmack. And they're not going to be the same if they're watered down and wobbly and, and been in the uh, cooked for so much. Another one we see uh, sesame seeds, and the fourth picture I have here, black pepper, is added on on the low main after it was cooked. So this is what we're finding out now. I don't know what's been going on forever. I don't know, but this is what we we discovered is happening now, and because many people rely a significant amount on these takeout stores, especially in the summer, especially now, especially if they're going away and they want to make it easy, going up to the mountains, you want to make it easy for yourself, you want to make, you want to take things along, make it easier for the wife, you want, you want, whatever you want to do, and this could be only one product, but this thing is, now you have to, have to worry about it. Just as you can't, you know, when you're adding in, uh, let's say you made a cholent, and you want to, you know, there's not enough barley in here, I'll put some more on. There's not enough uh, beans in here, you know. I didn't get a chance to put the beans in. Can I put them in now? I'll throw them in now. The beans are not going to be done in time. So it's not not completely cooked. And here we have things that are added on even after they're cooked, and therefore it's a bit of a problem. 
And you can realize that you have your own question. If you, when you're preparing in your own house, the food that you're going to put up and you cooked, and you didn't go to the, the takeout store, you made it on the premises, so you have that problem too. So now let me uh, read, first of all, what the Rabbanim said. I'm going to do it. They have a Hebrew and an English version. I'm going to read what they said in English. A major halakhic concern has come to our attention, which we feel is necessary for the community to be made aware of. It has become quite common for families to purchase ready-made takeout food for their Shabbos meals and to reheat this food on Shabbos in a permissible manner, such as on top of a pot with some food. In other words, the pot has food in it, and you're putting this thing that you want to warm up on top of the pot. That's a permissible way to do something on Shabbos itself. These manners of reheating are permitted if the takeout food is dry and is fully cooked or roasted. However, many establishments add seasoning or garnishing to the dishes after they're cooked, either to add flavor to the food or to add to the presentation. Oh, forgot that part. You know, that's very important in our kitchens as well. In such instances, it is forbidden to place the food in any area where it can be heated to the temperature of Yad Saletisbo, which means so hot that you would uh, you'd pull your hand away. And it is left there until it is cooked. It will be an Isa Doraisa. So Yad Saletisbo is an Isa Dorabonin. And when it comes completely cooked, then it's an Isa Doraisa. It's also forbidden to return food to a blech or crock pot if the added seasoning or garnishing is not fully cooked yet. Therefore, one may not warm up takeout food throughout, through any means unless it is totally clear that no uncooked ingredients were added after the food was cooked or roasted. Now, I hope that some of the takeout stores will change what they do. I hope that people will realize how important this is and ask the takeout stores. I hope it will be clear physically to see it yourself. I hope there won't be any more confusion, but if there is, you have to go to your own Rabbanim to discuss this matter further. But I suggested, I'm writing this up for the magazine also, and I suggest that all Rabbanim take some time out, whether it's on Shabbos this week, which would be a good idea, or sometime maybe when the Olam comes back, or uh, whenever you can to do some educational uh, shear on how to uh, warm foods on Shabbos and taking into account the new problem that we've discovered with the takeout foods, which... I'm sure some people were aware of it for a long time, but it seems that the Tzibor wasn't aware of it until now. Uh, why? That's a good question, but that's reality. So I was very impressed also that the four of Bunham came out with this. It could have been a shear in Lakewood. It could have been, you know, gotten around uh, locally over there, and it wouldn't have been an issue. But somebody put it in front of the Rabbanim, and they said, yep, this is something very important people didn't know about. And Baruch Hashem... These Rabbanim uh, are telling us the right way to go. And we look forward to other opportunities to hear from them, other inyanim that we do need to know. I'd like to go on to the second topic, and if you want to reach us here at the show, it's 718-683-5858, 718-683-5858. You can also text us at 347-927-8398. That's 347-927-8398 to text to us. Okay, we have a a question that comes up. and was I was asked today about the Keurig uh, coffee makers. 
Now, this Shaila, obviously everyone has different opinions. You know, it's like every other Shaila we have. But I researched a little bit, and I'm going to share with you what I do know. And I, I must explain that the Kurigs, these are the little, uh, the, the little cups, you know, the K-cups that they put in this machine. And you get a hot coffee, all different kinds of varieties you can put in. Some of them are kosher, some of them are not, some of them are milk, some of them are parva. Of course, you have to know what you're, what you're dealing with. And the big problem is when you're going into a, uh, in, into a business where a lot of different people use the same machine, and that's a very big issue, which maybe we'll get to here also, how you handle it when you're only one of those many people. Um, but the, the common question is, if you uh, go, let's say, for example, today's world, if you go to a hotel, they will have this for you there, in the mach- have a machine there, right there in your room with you. Can you use it? Somebody else used it before. Many people use it over the time. Is there any way I could use it? And so I'm going to go through the, the topic briefly. And the material that I'm giving you is from the OU, from the Star K, and from the CRC in Chicago. First, let's take the opinion of the, uh, let's get this, the opinion of the OU, which, I mean, they're not so much different, but I just want you to hear a little bit of the uh, nuances. The OU has uh, two pieces on their website that I was able to find, and it's very involved. I mean, you know, it tells you every little aspect that you want to know, everything you wanted to know about Keurig machines, Keurig coffee makers. And basically, it works out that you have a situation where the machine has been used for dairy or maybe a possibility not kosher, and you want to, you want to kosher it. So the Keurig machine is mostly made of plastic. Now, there are different opinions as to whether plastic can be kashered at all. For PESA, for sure. The question mark. The OU's position is to be lenient about, uh, because mokum tzorach, a necessity, a need. I cannot imagine a need that's called mokum tzorach here that uh, is so, so pressing to be able to have your Keurig machine. But uh, some people can't live without it. Maybe that's called a big tzorach for them. Anyway, the... the uh, the prevailing opinion is that for the year round, uh, you can kosher plastic. And I've heard from Rabunim that they do allow koshering of plastic. There are those who did not allow koshering plastic. But again, we're dealing with some things that are not clear trafe, and uh, a certain leniencies are allowed. Uh, but you can discuss that with your Rav if he allows koshering of plastic. So, if, pers- if, you used a u- if you bought a used Keurig machine, so that's the same question as the guy going to the uh, to the hotel. He's getting a used Keurig machine. So he, the OU says they can kosher it by cleaning out the cup holder. There's a cup holder where you put the cups, the curry cups, K-cups, you put them in there. So you you, you take that cur- that cup holder and you, uh, you you clean it out. It can be removed. It's, it, you clean it out, and then you kosher with running hot water the whole system. But in an office environment, it's not possible to wait the 24 hours that you should wait 
before you cash it. Now, so you, 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 when you're buying one or you're going to the hotel, you also maybe didn't get the 24 hours downtime. So it's the same thing as going to the, uh, the one in the office. So the OU's position is you can be lenient to cash the Keurig machine without waiting the 24 hours. You just, you just wipe out the cup holder all around. And I heard others take it out and they, uh, you know, they, 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 they actually make irui on it, which is pouring hot water on it from a, from a clear rishon, something that was on the fire. Um, or they, they just, in this case, there's this, this rabbi, different rabbi in the OU, is saying you just use uh, damp towels, and then you run hot water through the machine so that it touches all the surfaces. So in e- either event, we want you to run hot water through the machine. Now, this rabbi said an interesting idea. There's no name on it, uh, but uh, I think I might know who it is, but there's not no name on the article. I found that by ripping out the bottom of a styrofoam cup and placing it over the bottom of the cup holder will cause the holder to fill with hot water. Koshering with irui, this is what this is, pouring hot water, is acceptable since the Ikurig machine works through irui. That's how it becomes treif, and that's how it comes out. So we say kiboilo, kafpoto, the way it goes in is the way it comes out. That's a true statement. That if it's not, if it's only an iwi mikli rishon, that's how it became treif, then iwi from mikli rishon will take it out. And that's why, for example, for Pesach, we kasha the sinks by pour, if you have a metal sink, can't you only metal sinks can be kashered. We kasha the metal sink by pouring hot boiling water from a kli rishon all over it. That's called iwi mikli rishon. And the reason we're allowed to do that and I know some people are more machmir than that, but the basic reason we are allowed to do that is because that's how the Easter, the treif got in. Something fell there. It wasn't, there the, was not put out, you didn't take the oven and put, I mean the sink and put it on the fire. You, what you did is you poured hot liquid in there, hot, uh, hot uh, a piece of uh, meat or something fell down there, hot meat, or, or hot cocoa fell on there, or, or a tray fell on there, but whatever it is, it's basically an iwi, and therefore you can kosher it with iwi as well. The few ounces of hot coffee that run through these pipes do not qualify as an extended iwi. In industrial set- settings, we view the flow of product through the pipes as a continuation of the clearishon, sort of like what we do. We consider the, uh, the spout from the, in a faucet in our house we consider it to be an iwi, it's, a, it's a, like a clearishon, and it came all the way from the boiler. And that's how we're machmir to kasher the sink, and, we, uh, and, and we're afraid that the, the hot water, you know, for whatever it is, hit some food and this and that in the sink, and therefore it's an iwi mi clearishon, and that's what we're machmir. Even though the faucet upstairs in our house is, is very many feet away from the boiler in the basement, since it's an extension through pipes, just like that's how they do, they view it in the industrial settings as well. So why can't we kosher our sinks with an iwi, just pouring hot water from the from the faucet? Because we're only machmir that that's an, uh, an iwi mikli shown. Therefore, we need to have something that's a really iwi mikli shown, and that's how we take water that was heated on the fire with the pot, throwing it. Uh, a pot or a, a tea kettle and pouring that water over the sink. Anyway, uh, without confusing you anymore, 
He said, by running a cup of hot water through the pipes, there will definitely be more than shishim keneged the kedei klipa. And uh, he goes a little more involved in that, but that's what he's recommending. So in other words, he wants you to do two things. One is to somehow clean, or better yet, to make irui, pour hot boiling water onto the cup holder. You take the cup holder out of the machine, and you do this somewhere else. And then, of course, get far enough away, you don't get hurt. And then also you have to, uh, you, you, you put hot running water through the, uh, the uh, Keurig system, and that will kosher it out. Whether it can be done for Pesach or not is an issue, and I don't really want to spend too much time on it now. And whether you need to feel or not, you can look at the whole thing on the OU website. I'm not interested in getting into it now. But I do want to mention the Star-K and the CRC's position on this matter as well. The Star-K says, non-kosher chicken soup, and that's what some people use in the Keurig machine, will render a Keurig machine trafe. Dairy products will render it dairy. Non-certified flavored coffees will not render the Keurig non-kosher. However, if such coffee is used, one should clean the Keurig from any remaining non-certified coffee by dispensing hot water and discarding it before making kosher coffee. A Keurig that may have been used with non-kosher products or dairy and one wants it to remain part of can be koshered this way. Clean the Keurig, well, clean the whole machine. Replace the cup holder with a new cup holder. So they do not want you. When the thing was used for trafe, or you, or it was used for dairy, and you, you're concerned about. It. You want it to be really parva. You want it really to be proper. The Star K opinion is, you just don't kasha that plastic by uh, pouring hot water on it. You don't just clean it. You replace it. Do not use it all for 24 hours, and then run a cycle of hot water to kasha the upper metal pin. So that's all you're really getting done is that since there's a metal piece inside, that metal piece can be kashered with hot, wa- hot water running through it. This may not be so practical in office as you, because you need the 24 hours downtime. So the star K is making it very difficult for the person in the office to use the Keurig machine, if it's a possibility that they use non-kosher, or that... They definitely use dairy, and you want it to be really parva. So the OU, the Star K opinion is that it's not practical. Um, in, uh, in, in, in case you wanted to do it, it seems that there's a little work to do. You have to replace a part, the cup holder, and you, uh, you have to run the cycle of hot water in between the kasha, that metal pin. The CRC says it this way. That's Chicago Rabbinical Council. A Keurig machine should be dedicated to kosher use, and you shouldn't be mixing them up back and forth. If this is not possible, then the procedure for using the machine for a kosher parva beverage depends on what type of non-kosher or dairy beverages were being used in the machine. If the machine was only used for certified kosher parva beverages and non-certified coffee or tea whose only ingredients are coffee and tea and flavor, then one should clean the machine by running a hot water cycle without a K-cup in the machine. And only afterwards 
should the kosher beverage be brewed in the Keurig machine. So that's for something that's not certified. If the machine was possibly used for hot cocoa, means dairy, soup, which would be treif, or K-cups, which contain kosher-sensitive ingredients other than flavor, means the real non-kosher ingredients possible, the Keurig machine cannot be used without the hot koshering, which requires the following steps. Thoroughly clean the needles and K-cup pack holder as per the Keurig instructional video, and they tell you that on the Keurig machine, it tells you how to do this. So that's the, the you know, I'm not going to tell you, it's a, it's a YouTube thing, but there's a way, the instructional video that you can get that tells you, tells you how to clean the needles and the K-cup holder. Do not use the machine for 24 hours and then run two hot water cycles without a K-cup of the machine. So the most machmir here, uh, it's a close-up, how was more machmir, the star K or the CRC, but it's not a shoe-in. Uh, the OU's position is very simple. So you just you have to just uh, make an eerie on the or, uh, or properly clean that that K cup holder, and then you have to run a cycle through with the um, with the water with the, you know hot water. Um, but the star K has so, some concern about that. First of all, you need the downtime of the twenty four hours, and uh, the star K says uh, uh, you have to replace the cup holder, and then you then you could use the the hot water on the on the on the top metal pin. The CRC wants you to run it through two hot water cycles. So this is something, you know, everybody should ask their own of. Obviously, I'm just giving you an overview, and that gives you some kind of an idea of what um, the, the situation is with the Kerrig machine. So we took up today so far two topics, the letter from the Lakewood Rabbanim on the serious Shabbos problem of the, uh, the, and the takeout foods, which are being added onto it, fresh, raw, non-cooked uh, spices and uh, garnishings, and that, that that's a concern that we should all have for Shabbos. And we discussed the Kerrig machines, how they could be used, to how could they could possibly be kashered, is it convenient or proper for do it in a hotel setting? Uh, my personal opinion is, what do you need all that for? But if you want to, if it's very, very important, and you follow the rules, Obviously, 24 hours is something that's a little bit tricky because in a hotel, they're putting people in very, very soon after each other, and it may only be a couple of hours, may not be a Linus Lila, maybe no heter at all to rely on koshering between the previous use, which could be for anything under the sun. Especially, you know and I know that when people go away and they get something that's free, it's not really free, but they paid a lot of money for the hotel night, but they consider the perks as free. All the shampoos disappear, the, the soap disappears, sometimes the towels disappear, who knows what else might disappear, and, and when you hear when you're giving the machine, even no one's going to steal the machine, but they feel like a perk. They got a, one of these, these here, and they have, actually have kosher ones, and look at that, there's an OU on this one, and it's an OU parva, and it's the, not even a dairy one, wow, I can use it. And so that's a perk, and whenever somebody gets a perk for free, they go with sugar. I met recently a gentleman who is extremely wealthy. He owns more apartment buildings than I could even imagine. I don't know the number of them, but I know how many, I know how, uh, something about his business. And it is, it's a really awesome business. Uh, profit margin is uh, up over the top. 
and he, I saw him. He's not normally around here. And I saw him in Shul, uh, Rabbi Landau Shul. And they, uh, I see him eating a Danish and a coffee. And he just, he just come in, uh, got off the plane, and and he's and 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 he's and he says to me, ah, you know, it, it, there's nothing like a free Danish. <laughs> so with all the money, you know, a perk is a perk, and then people love to have it, and it's hard for them to give it up. But I would advise <laughs> when you go to a hotel, you can live without that one little thing. There might be other uh, opportunities at a hot drink someplace. But if you if it's you know if you want to work it out, you're going to have to follow the rules that I just gave you, or consult your rov. The next topic on our agenda is, and I hope I'm going to get to it by force. I have to do that sometime, and we hope hope it'll be today. But first, I want to mention about what happened in um, in this uh, hotel. I mean, this hospital. <laughs> Not the hotel now, the hospital in Manhattan. I don't know how many of you remember, but we had on the show a while back Rabbi Goldberg from the the Vatikashvus of Flatbush, and he was giving hashkocha to the hospital in a community to the uh, Beth Israel Hospital, the here on Kings Highway, which is connected with the Mount Sinai Beth Israel system. And they made a decision back in December of 2015. That's when he was on the show. Uh, they made a decision that they're dropping kosher in two of their divisions. They were they had at that time they had a fully kosher kitchen in three of their hospitals: one in Manhattan, the main one at about 100th Street, the, the the one down on East 16th Street and First Avenue, and the one here in on Kings Highway. And the decision was made at that time, 2015. Well, truthfully, let's tell you a little history, is that Beth Israel took over, I'm sorry, Mount Sinai took over Beth Israel. It was a merger, and they took over all the Beth Israels, and they made this, you know, and, and, and that was back in 2013. Anyway, this particular hospital on King's Highway called Beth Israel uh, was, they had had a kosher kitchen, up until two, December 2015. Likewise, the, on, the one on 16th Street in Manhattan at 1st Avenue and 16th Street, or the Beth Israel over there, also had a kosher kitchen. The one in Manhattan was certified by the OU, and the one here in Brooklyn by Rabbi Goldberg from the Vatikash of Flappish. We made a show about it. We tried our best to make a push and we gave out a number, and this, I don't know really what happened inside the system. But not so long ago, we were notified that they went back to giving the kosher kitchen. In the interim, what happened was meals were made in Manhattan at 100th Street, and they were shipped out to the uh, satellite uh, hospitals on East 16th Street in Manhattan and here in Brooklyn, and you ordered, I mean, you, you put your order in for the day. The hospital ordered from the main hospital, and everything was there in like two hours. So you had enough food for the day. Everything was set up properly, and it didn't look to you like anything was going on. But what they did was, like, they had no kosher kitchen. All they had was a bunch of microwaves that were kosher, 
and the mashkiach put them into the microwave and made sure that it got delivered to you. That was his job. That was what a mashkiach did. He physically put them into the microwave, took them out, and sent them up to you. That's how they handled kosher from December 2015. Then it was reinstated here in Brooklyn. But just this week, I think it was Thursday, we got a notification from the OU that the hospital, as of the end of July, still going on till July 31st, there's still a kosher kitchen there, but at July 31st, they're going to cease to have a kosher kitchen on the 1st Avenue and six, uh, 16th Street Hospital called Beth Israel. The main branch up at 100th Street is going to still be uh, kosher under the OU. Brooklyn, it sounds like, is going to continue kosher under the OU. But the one over there is going to be closed down, and the only thing you can get is double-wrapped meals that are that are with, with no kosher attending, to, no, no, no uh, religious staff attending to it. It's given over completely to non-Jewish hands, and it's like going on nail on. You're, you're ordering a meal that's prepared and double-sealed and thrown into the machine to be warmed up by the non-Jewish staff. That's, that's what's going to happen as of July 31st. So it seems that I happen to know what happened here in Brooklyn because I, I close with the, one of the mashkichim, and he told me that there were approximately 20 people a day who were ordering kosher. And obviously the, the hospital decided that 20 people a day out of 200, that's a 10%, was significant enough in a Brooklyn area where there's so many Orthodox people, service, the hospital services, they didn't want to get cut out. Remember, right, a few blocks away is another hospital called Community Hospital, which also has Hashgacha from Rabbi Goldberg and also has a kosher kitchen. And they're, they're obviously, they would be losing out to a sim- similar hospital, also a small little hospital, to service the people here locally in Flatbush. So they made a corporate decision. We're going to give back kosher in Brooklyn, but we're going to take it away in Manhattan on East 16th Street and, and First Avenue. So I tried what I could last time, and I decided to do something this time. This was on Thursday. I called my friends at the OU, a couple of them anyway. I didn't, call, I didn't speak to Rabbi Ganak, and I, but I spoke to some people there, and they really weren't aware yet of what had happened. So I, I decided I'm going to move on it. It was important. And I, I felt even if it's just to find out whom you could contact so I could tell you people over the, over the you know, over here on the, on, on, the, on the show, I could say, you know, call this person, speak to this person, etc. But I figured, why not? So I decided I'll, I'll, I'll call. So I made six calls to Beth Israel on East 16th Street. No one was able to answer any question, and everybody sent me to a different department on six different occasions. And I realized, this is silly. They don't know what's going on. And first of all, it hasn't happened yet. It's another two weeks. Second, I asked them for a person to contact. They couldn't find anybody. They kept giving me over to the... To the uh, <laughs> they wanted to give me over to the uh, you know to a pastoral counseling to the rabbis or or whatever they were over there. 
Eventually, I got a call back from a woman who told me that she's the she's the uh, pastor. It was it was handling everything. Now I didn't ask if she's Jewish. If she's not Jewish, is this or that? I can't imagine she's not Jewish because I don't think they allow anybody uh, in, the, in the other religions. I don't believe that they allow women to be the, the to be in that position. But maybe they do. I don't know. So anyway, that she called. I talked to her, but nobody knew a thing. No one knew how to handle it. Well, I'm, uh, you know, I, I have ideas. I'm an editor of a magazine. I can think think things out. I got the num. I got the email address of the COO, the Chief Operating Officer of Beth of Mount Sinai, Beth Israel. One, the, the person who's the COO over the seven hospitals that is, is in the Mount Sinai system. Okay? So she's on the top there. And I sent her an email. And I told her you know, exactly what her concerns are and, and I want to know and et cetera, et cetera. And then I think after I sent it, I said, you know, maybe I should get somebody from that hospital itself. So I scrounged around. I found out the president's name president of the hospital. And I knew the trick of how to set up the email, because every company has a different way to set up the email. You know, the OU has one way to set up the emails, and the hospital, this hospital has one, another way to set up the emails. And I, I learned the trick. By, by sending the first email, I knew the trick of how to take a name and make an email address out of it. So I did, and I sent it to the president of the Mount Sinai, Beth Israel Mount Sinai Hospital and East 16th Street, I'm sorry, on, on 16th Street, on First Day Avenue, the exact uh, hospital that we're talking about. It was not an hour. It was seven minutes later, he emailed me back. I was shocked. Seven minutes. We will get back to you shortly. It's we... And it's shortly, okay. I wasn't expecting any miracle. The next morning, he called up, spoke to my secretary, or maybe somebody, maybe he didn't speak to him, maybe somebody working for him spoke to him. I don't know, I wasn't there. Then, uh, <laughs> and uh, spoke to my secretary and asked if I would be nice enough to have a uh, meeting with them on the phone at this and this time. So I was there. And I had the meeting with them on the phone. It was the COO of the, of the whole organization and the president of this particular hospital branch. And we went through the entire topic from A to Z. It was very, very interesting. The man knows a lot. He's been around for many, many years in the system there. He knows all the hospitals and all about kosher and all about the Orthodox community and all about everything. And he was very, very, very nice gentleman. And he explained exactly why they did what they did. He said, we, you told me that in Brooklyn you're getting 20 meals a day. In this hospital, we're getting between four and five people asking for kosher a day. Now, that hospital has officially 800 beds, but in reality they use 215 beds in the regular hospital and 100 mental patients. So, so let's say 315. And the course of a day... They're getting four to five requests for kosher. He said it would cost him two hundred dollars. I think that was. I wasn't sure if that was a per day or per meal. I, I don't didn't get the number correct. But two hundred dollars something he used he used figure per person. I, it could be for the day. 
in any event, it was prohibitive to them. And then that was the whole discussion, and they gave me a name of somebody to contact, which I have, and I'm going to give it out in a minute. But, you know, I am an editor, and I am putting together an article, and I did write it up, and I decided that I have to find out a little bit more about everything. So then I did my research, and I found out that in 2015, when the hospital went, well, actually, when the hospital went non-kosher, I'm not non-kosher, when they eliminated the kosher kitchen in the two hospitals, the one on 16th Street and the one here in Flatbush on Cotton Kings Highway. So at that time, there was an article that ran in the New York Times. And the New York Times quoted something very, very interesting. It seems that, and you can study this, it's not so hard to find it, you know, the, the information is, uh, is quite, quite interesting. In 1889, 40 Orthodox Jews who fled persecution in Russia and its surrounding countries collected, get ready for this, 25 cents each. That's a lot of money. 25 cents in 1889 to start a dispensary in the Lower East Side, Loft, according to the hospital and the New York Times archives. Who started the hospital? 40 Orthodox Jews collecting 25 cents. And in Kosher Today, who wrote an article about it at that time, they said that in these, uh, that in this, uh, for the, in, 19, in 1890, one year later, Kosher Today said they, they incorporated the hospital. So it's the Orthodox, 40 Orthodox Jews incorporated Beth Israel Hospital in 1890. And Kosher Today added a few words. I didn't say them. I wish I had. Some observers wondered if the requirement for a kosher kitchen was not part of the original charter. I don't know if it was or it wasn't, but it's a nice line. I wish I had said it. (laughs) But that's not the whole thing. The article from the New York Times went on and said, Beth Israel became a clinic on Henry Street an inpatient hospital on East Broadway, and then three moves later, a bustling hospital off Stuyvesant Square where its employees speak languages as diverse as Thai and Twai from Ghana. But what the, but the Times added one more line. According to Times archives, when Beth Israel was founded, other hospitals would not accept immigrants who had been in the city for less than a year. Beth Israel took every immigrant. So then I I realized it was Orthodox Jews that built Beth Israel. Orthodox Jews and Orthodox Gelt. And I also realized it was Jewish chesed values and that know no bounds. And they considered every individual so I, I leave with the question that perhaps money should not be the only determining factor about kosher for Orthodox Jews in this hospital.
You could decide yourself, and I'm going to give it a number out. I th- I think I, ha- I have it there. Yeah. Uh, I put it over here. Here it is. If anybody wants to find out more about the whole issue from the hospital perspective or to lodge any complaint or concern that you may have, the name of the person you want is Brad, B-R-A-D, Korn, K-O-R-N. And I'm going to give you his office number and his cell. His office number is 646-605-7203. And his cell number, Brad Korn's cell number, 917-273-0734. That's 917-273-0734. Again, the office, 646-605-7203. And the cell phone, 917-273-0734. If you want to know anything more about this, if you have a concern personally, if you know of anybody who has a concern, if you're concerned about for the Jewish community at large, about the fact that they're closing this uh, department down, uh, complaining to the OU is, is, is worthless because they, they, don't, they don't make the decision. It's totally from the hospital side. And this gentleman, I, I had asked that they, he report back to the heads of the, uh, of the hospital and, and tell them if anybody said something that they should be considering for the future. And my hope is that uh, maybe we could stop this one as uh, we were able to do it here in Brooklyn, although it was a struggle. So I, I can't tell you how it's going to end up, uh, and I don't really think that it's, uh, you know, I, I can understand the hospital saying that they don't want to spend that much money. That's very logical. But on the other hand, uh, I personally believe that they're uh, they're making a me- an error, and that it's going to be um, it's going to be a uh, problem for them. They're going to lose a little bit of business, but maybe not enough that it's worth it. That that's a decision that they have. So uh, we have a little more time. I still would like to get to this other topic, but I may have to save it. I want to mention one more thing that came out, and that's called the Karma Cap, K A R M A Cap, by Grossman from the OU put out an article on the karma cap. It's not something you wear on your head. It seems that it comes on top of uh, wellness water from karma. They made a special cap. And it's a new thing, new technology that we never saw before. You know, a lot of the uh, good value of these special waters is lost by the fact that it sits around for who knows how long sitting on the shelf for 90 days or something like that, you know, it, it, they lose the, a lot of the power that it says it has in the inside. So this karma cap is you push the cap and it pushes in the, uh, uh, the special uh, vitamins that you want into the water. So before you drink it, you push it. So now it, what it basically boils down to is that needs hushkaka too. Because that's a that's a product that's going to have uh, something that's added to the water. So, fortunately, in the Karma case, the OU certifies the product and also that special cap, which is a, it's a whole separate thing done in a different place. You know, it's specially made for them. But that's something that 
you know, with things that get more com- complex <laughs> as time goes on, it gets more and more complex. So we have a little time. We're gonna, I'm going to start this. I have a feeling we're not going to finish it because I don't see that much time left in the day. Anyway, let's go. This, I'm going to finish it next time, but Lee Nether. Rabbi Binyamin Forst, F-O-R-S-T, is a Rav, a well-known personality. We really knew know his name, even if you don't remember. Living in Farakaway. He has an organization, Kahal Nasiv Torah. But what you know him for is he wrote a whole bunch of sporim for Art Scroll on the laws of brachos, on the laws of need, on the laws of kashras, and the kashras, the kosher kitchen. Uh, and he's he has some fantastic sporim out there that are very, very, very well done. I mean, they're top. You know, make make life a lot easier for you. And I'm sure you've you've heard about them. So he lives in Farakwe. And Farakaway has a hashkocha called the Vatic of the Five Towns, and that services Farakaway as well as the as well as the Five Towns in the, the Long Island area. They're all right inter, interwoven together, and everybody goes to maybe about a hundred hashkochas under the Vatic of the Five Towns. It's a very big hashkocha. But years ago, Rabbi Reisman. Yaakov Reisman, not the one who was here in Flappish, but Yaakov Reisman from Aguda in Farakaway set up a special program where he monitored the uh, establishments the Vad gave Hashkocha to, and he made his own listing. And it was not, did not include everybody. And he had certain criteria. And he worked together with the Vad and didn't know opposition, but you had his list or you took the Vad's list. The Vaz list was twice the size of his list. When he uh, stopped doing this, retired, so uh, Rabbi Forst was asked if he would continue such a program. And Rabbi Forst is his own man and did it his own way. But what I'm going to begin to read to you now, and we'll finish it next week, because there's only a few minutes left, is an exciting document which you can get from the organization. I'll give you a telephone number. You can start you off. 718-337-8370. That's the number for the Kahal and the Siv Torah and their, and their, uh, their Kashas hotline, Halacha hotline. Their, uh, this is a certain number you need. 718-337-8370. And you could ask about the, uh, the letter to members <coughs> But not members, but uh, to the letter to members uh, that the uh, the Rav uh, for Rabbi Force gave out to explain about Kashrus in the five towns and, and in Farakway. So let's begin. We have a few minutes. As you were aware, this is written to members. I don't even know what the members are. I suppose the members are this Kahal. I'm not sure exactly. I didn't call anybody. I just got this also, but it's old. So uh, maybe he has a newer one. As you are aware, the Rub has established a program by which members of our Kehila will be able to easily ascertain whether a particular food establishment meets his Mahudar standards. As the Rub explained, all establishments under the, under the supervision of the Vada of the Five Towns are unquestionably kosher. Unlike other communities which have varying, competing kosherist agencies, Certifying different establishments, the Far Rockaway Five Towns community is fortunate to have one accepted 
Vada Kashas, which certifies all eating establishments in the community. While all the above is true, the Rav explained that there are many different halachic opinions in matters of kashras. Likewise, there are many standards in kashras supervising agencies, some stricter and some more lenient. There's no absolute proper and correct standard. Some stricter standards are based on differing opinions among poiskim. Others are based upon chumra or minig. This being the case, the Rav feels that it's his duty to keep the kahil informed of which standards he feels are stricter standards based on halacha and which are stricter standards based on chumra or minig, and not necessarily halacha. In addition, there are individuals in our kahila who wish to comply with hidurim in the food that they eat, and to the extent possible, the Rav wishes to assist them in determining which eateries conform to these hidurim. Would that he would do Flatbush. Oh, would that he would do Borough Park. We don't have that fortunate. It should be stressed that all this is done with the complete approval of the leadership of the far Rockaway Five Towns by the Kashvis. You know, I don't know if you don't, you don't know Rabbi Forst. I do. And he, the man is very, very uh, good getting along with people. He's wonderful. And he's able to do this, and even Rabbi, and Rabbi Reisman is also able to do it. You can get along with people and still have a strong opinion if you do it in a nice, decent way. And these people do, are doing that. Furthermore, it should be understood that presenting this information should not and does not imply that the Rav expects every member of our Kehillah to eat foods that only these establishments that were given the Muhuda status. Every member should decide for himself whether he wishes to follow any or all of the guidelines that are described below. And now we're going to discuss them. And I think the time is almost over, so I might start with one of the two of them and finish it next time. But, but I just want to end off. We had Baruch Hashem last week uh, an opportunity to set, make a special announcement of uh, giving a special uh, option of uh, getting Kashrus Magazine, our regular publication uh, on Kashrus, which we've been doing for 37 years, to give it out at a special rate. And there were people who responded, and I want to give another opportunity if anybody um, wants to call us. And you could do that at call 718-336-8544. That's the Kashas office, 718-336-8544. And you can have the special rate of $18 for one year. It's normally 25 And you can also have uh, two subscriptions for $25. That comes to 12 and a half. Uh, dollars a piece. If you want two subscriptions at 25, you, you and a member of the family, or you can have two going to yourself, one here and one to your office, one to your home, or you can send it to different people or a special gift you want to give to somebody who you feel would appreciate it. Uh, you can do that at regular rate of $25, but you get two, two for one, or you can get $18 instead of $25. Just call 718-336-8544 or email us at Kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com. Again, 718-336-8544, or you can email us at Kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com. And I was reading to you briefly from Rabbi Binyamin Forst's um, Kahila about the special listing that he has. Now, we're not going to go through the list 
we're not going to mention any of the names of the co- of the companies and the uh, certifi- uh, the uh, establishments out there, but you can get information. I gave you a number before for Rabbi Forst's organization, which was 718-337-8370, and you could contact them for details and maybe get an updated letter. I have an old letter, and I have to get it, see if I can, the new one is any different. And we're going to go through next time a whole bunch of the ideas that he has. But I'm going to start with the first one now in the three minutes remaining. Tuna fish. The policy of the postgame of the OU is to follow the halachic opinion that accepts tuna that is filleted on the fishing boats. Other postgame follow the halachic opinion that does not accept tuna filleted on the boats because of a lack of simone kashras. There's no, when it comes back from the boats, there's no way of telling what it is because you don't have any, uh, you don't have any fins or scales to see. There are also concerns of bishal akam pertaining to canned tuna because you cook it in the can. The Rav advises that one should follow the strict opinion and not use OU tuna. Accordingly, any establishment that uses OU tuna will not be considered muhudr. Incidentally, all OUP, that means kosher for Passover tuna, is produced with the mashkiach tamidi and is acceptable even according to the muhudr standards. If one, if one prefers the tuna brand certified by the OU, it's a good idea to stock up on OUP tuna for year-round use. Now, I know we, we try as much as possible to avoid any uh, you know issues, uh, not mention things, but I thought that was important because a lot of people don't understand that uh, there is a basic difference in the positions about the um, canning of tuna. And uh, Rabbi uh, uh, Menachem Ganak wrote a beautiful piece years ago, I have it, um, explaining nine reasons why the OU does not is not concerned about the the, uh, the, the cooking of uh, the fish in the in the, for uh, for tuna. Why they don't want the bishul Yisrael on that? Why it's not needed? He has he has nine reasons. But the accepted opinion by most of the other organizations is that we want bishul Yisrael and we want somebody to be there present to observe to see that it does have the simonim, the the fins and the scales, in order to be guaranteed that you're having a kosher fish. So uh, maybe we'll take up that a little bit next time as well. But I hope to continue with this Rabbi Forst piece. If you want to reach us during the week or you want to get that special I just gave you, 718-336-8544. And uh, just leave a message. We'll get back to you. Call right now if you'd like, 718-336-8544. Or you can email us at kashrus, K-A-S-H-R-U-S, at AOL.com. And until next week, this is your host, Rabbi Yosef Wickler, editor of Kashas Magazine, wishing you a wonderful week.